So I'm going to tell you a short list of things, and I want you to tell me what you think they all have in common. Okay, got it. Listening. Melody Ellison, the USS Nautilus, Joe DiMaggio, Tina Knowles, Oprah Winfrey, and Marilyn Monroe. Like, what would you suspect that these people have in common? They've all appeared in a Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire. That's a very good guess. Would it help you to know that Melody is a Capricorn? Whoa, they all have the same birthday? They all either have the same birthday or celebrated a huge life event in January 1954. USS Nautilus is launched. Joe DiMaggio weds Marilyn Monroe. Tina Knowles is born in Texas. She's born three days after Melody, which I think is not a coincidence. Oprah's two weeks later. Whoo! Like, imagine being born in the same proximity as Oprah. Or Tina or Melody. Iconic. Um, Welcome, everyone, to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm not Melody. I'm just Mary. I'm not on the USS Nautilus. I'm not sure anyone has been for a while, but I'm Allison. I'm not born in January 1954. You're not a Capricorn. I am not. Energy. I'm a Capricorn rising. Okay. I don't know what that means, but I'm excited for you. All I know is that as of this recording, we are days from Leo season. When this airs, it's going to be Leo season. Like everyone, please like check in with yourself, secure what you need to secure. Like it is a wild time and I hope (laughs) everyone is prepared to celebrate accordingly. I think Melody probably loves Leo season. I think maybe she has some placements. I could see that for her. Yeah. I mean, fire signs, like it's a special, it's a special kind of person. You can either tolerate it or you can't, but it's, you know, it's our time basically, but everyone can aspire to Leo status during Leo season. Like you can cosplay, go for it. Never stop singing is kind of like a Leo anthem. It's a challenge. It's like, yeah, maybe I won't stop singing. That's how I read that title. I'm like, okay, you want to bet me? Like, let's do this. For me, it's more, I'm not going to start, but I am very happy for Melody. I'm happy that we get a good story with her. Yeah, I think this book is yet another win in the in like the Melody column. I'm concerned. I'm invested enough to be concerned about Dwayne's professional career. <laughs> speaking of singing, like I need to know, like does he make it? I think Dwayne makes it. I think the question is not where is Dwayne in 1974, but where is Dwayne in 1984? Whoa. And I think there like have to be some tough years, right? Like there have to be some tough times, but I think he is on a slow and steady rise, which is important because you don't want to be meteoric in the 1960s. I think that's true. And like if Smokey is maybe his like cipher, his model, like Smokey himself had to do kind of a rough transition from like soul to disco, like in the seventies, everyone had to be like, um, yeah, I've always been disco. Sure. (laughs) Here's my single. Like it's all happening, but I think he kind of made it. He made that work for him. I would hope Dwayne could do the same. I feel like we're, we're talking about melody. It's sort of like the summer of the Taylor Swift concert slash Barbenheimer. Mm -hmm. Like it's an interesting cultural moment. What, like, what do you love besides that? Like what's interesting or exciting to you beyond those two things? Or three things. Wow. Well, I'm very excited to see Barbie. Um, I watched 90 Day Fiance. The it couple of this newest season, one of them, well, both of them, they uh, FaceTime 24 hours a day. They have been nonstop FaceTiming for days and days on end. One is in the West Coast of the United States. The other is in the Philippines. And in an iconic girl boss moment, the woman from the Philippines who has been particularly insistent about the 24-7 FaceTiming, even during sleep, turns to the camera and says, you know, sometimes I just want to go out with my guy friends. So I pretend we've had a storm and I've lost power and I power my phone off. And she kind of giggles and goes off. You know, I think the show has really interesting things to say about like power dynamics in relationships. Mm -hmm. I always think to myself, like, they can't possibly still be making this show. And then I tune in again. So they keep I guess me- what I'm bumping up against is, like, what kind of cell plan are we on with these two? Hugely unlimited. Lots of Wi-Fi. He does live full-time oh, no. in a camper in the no. United States. And in a kind of 
in a kind of iconic moment, like, so I've been watching this show long enough to, like, truly watch, like, the last vestiges of, like, our imperial power crumble. And he turns to camera at one point and says, like, the U.S. hasn't really been a win for wow. me. He's a he's a, a young white male. To camera, the U.S. has not really been a win, so I'm willing to, like, oh try it out in the Philippines, which uh. everything old is new again. I recommend it. It's good summer mm. watching. Like, obviously, I'm doing, like, reading. I'm catching up on Barbie discourse. But, you know, we'll be there by the time this comes out. I'm very excited mm-hmm. to talk about Melody. I feel like she brings a great energy to the summer. I think so. Like, she just, she makes me think all things are possible. I, like, Melody brought me up. She gave me a feeling of hope and also suggested some great music to me. I've been listening to a lot of Motown reading these books. So I'm very excited to get into it. So I'll go ahead and give us a quick summary. It's Melody's birthday, and she's excited to turn double digits on January 1st, 1964. She's also eager to answer her pastor's New Year's challenge and make her community better. Melody decides to fix up the neighborhood playground and plant a garden. Her friends pitch in, but after a series of setbacks, Melody realizes that being a leader isn't easy. But it is easy to say yes when her brother asks her to sing backup for him. Melody gets to go to the Motown music studio and add her voice to a real record. Can she find a way to make her voice stand out in the studio and in her community? Wow. Covering a lot of ground, as this book does. The description does live up to the book. Yes. What are what are your initial impressions beyond that you enjoyed this book? I mean, I enjoyed the book. I really think, and we'll get into this, like positioning her, one of the many, many plot lines, like one is Dwayne records an original song and she gets to sing back up. One is the whole playground rescue situation, her sister doing freedom summer and going to Alabama to see her family farm. All this is happening in this book. Let me take it to a professional place, and I hate to bring girl boss discourse into this conversation, but let me just ask, did Melody get paid for recording Dwayne's song? I don't believe that Melody is ever going to see a dime from that. Like, basically, Dwayne comes to her, and we'll get into this, but he's like, hey, girl, like, you want to sing back up on my song? And she's like, oh, my God. Like, of course, like, freaking out as anyone would. And, like, in an unstated moment, like, this is nonverbal. I'm picking this up, these cues. But he's basically, like, if she had suggested, like, and how much will it cost, he's like, it won't cost you a dime. How much does it pay? won't cost you a dime. I think he is leaning heavy on the exposure. Something we learn in this book is that not only has he been touring, which started in book one, in book two, we learn that when you sign with Motown and Barry Gordy, you're not just signing on for a record deal. You have to take lessons in how to dress and how to have professional meetings and how to comport yourself. And so Dwayne is undergoing like a major transformation. He's in the midst of a renaissance, you might say. Like there's been... There's like some fashion choices, like he's wearing slacks, as my grandmother would say. He's, you know, like appearing more professional. It's interesting, and I didn't realize Motown did that, that they're kind of taking a cue from almost like the old Hollywood studio system where you, when you were signed, you were also thrown into like elocution lessons and etiquette and your clothes were changed and all this and that, even if you hadn't starred in a single movie or appeared in a single film at that point. I think part of what that's pointing to and we're having these two older siblings who are very different but facing similar challenges is done so well in this book. Bonnie is going to college, which is the journey that her parents want, and yet Yvonne is the one who is arrested while participating in Freedom Summer. And you have this really fascinating parallel as you learn more about Yvonne's journey. She is being prepped as part of Freedom Summer to know how to get arrested, not Mm. whether or if, but how to get arrested. And when you read between the lines, they're teaching Dwayne how to survive the music industry, how to do a show in Detroit and then travel to rural Tennessee and do a show, how to order a suit, right? So you're actually Mm. served in a racist institution versus what happens in book one, where he goes to Fieldston's, which is a department store, and Melody is accused of stealing and he is treated poorly. So you're kind of seeing this interesting thing where By the time her older brother and sister are teenagers and young adults, there's a whole infrastructure to train people how to survive activism, which didn't exist even 
for Rosa Parks, right? Like that was built up by those people. So kind of a cool parallel to show like they're doing their lives very differently. They're choosing different goals to pursue, but they're both authentically being themselves and getting a lot of guidance along the way. And I do think there's an interesting story that could be like book four or five in this series, which obviously we're not going to get, but like there's a generational story set up even between the siblings where it's like Yvonne and Dwayne, like they're being taught or learning how to operate in the system as it exists right now. Like they're being Mm -hmm. taught how to be arrested or like how to navigate within racist systems to get something that they need. And even like the uncle and the aunt, like in book one, we learned they want to buy a house. He's a pharmacist. She has her own salon and they can't because of redlining and restrictive covenants and all this other stuff that keeps people of color from buying in white neighborhoods. So they work with a real estate agent who knows how to work within the system and like find white people who will sell to people of color. But all to say, it's like in just even like 10 years from this moment or even five years, it's like you're going to even get some more radicalism in civil rights movements that are going to push for like reimagining the system or like operating outside of it. So I wonder, you know, if there was like a teenage era book, it would be cool to see how like Melody as a teenager might approach her activism differently in that moment than her siblings, who by then will be in their 20s. There was a great article in the Detroit Free Press about, you know, the way that the author, Denise Lewis Patrick, really came to this story because Mm. it's pointed out, and we discussed this last time, she is a native of Louisiana, which made her a great choice to write Cecile. But, you know, people wanted her to have like deep Detroit roots in doing the research for this book. And so she met with a whole advisory panel that included Julian Bond, who, as you'll note, the book is actually dedicated to. He passed away within Mm. a year of this book coming out, but he worked on the advisory board. And a woman named Joanne Watson, who was a city councilwoman and who ran the Detroit NAACP, This is partially based on her life story. So a person who was like raised in activism, who came up through activism and also had a political role. And it was interesting to see her talk about that and to also see like for a lot of our listeners, maybe a known quantity, Mark Speltz, right? Who was Mm. like the official historian, the fact that like this really pulled together such a diverse group of people but that Denise Louise Patrick said, like, I need to kind of like find a blueprint for a real person and found it in Joanne Watson. That's really cool. I love that they kind of came together and they centered it on a real person. And also that they found someone for whom like she's not just a witness to her siblings doing like activist activities. Like we're literally following her as she moves through a lot of different spaces. And she's at the center of a lot of, you know, taking action on a lot of these issues. Yeah, part of this book is about Melody learning that her parents and like people her parents' age have this really well-established block group and they do local activism. And I like that there's never a sense that like she is welcome to just kind of join that. And I think that's where this book shows an important difference between like, sorry to go all the way back to 2019. Felicity overhears about a political plot and is like, oh yeah, like I'm in. Right. Which is like not safe or necessary or like on a lot of levels, like really realistic. And what I like about this book is Melody is shown a pathway to activism. And there is a kind of funny moment where she like interjects during an adult meeting and people signal to her like that is not really welcome, right? Like your voice is important, but this is like a really uh, distinctive thing that adults do. And she takes from that and says, like, well, what if I create my own structure for, like, a youth block group? Like, a very different approach than, like, Felicity kind of mucking about and, like, asking people to join a coup with her. (laughs) Yes. Well, and also it's, like, Felicity went so rogue that she never consulted her parents ever about any of the stuff she was getting up to. Like, there's never, like, there's so many heartwarming scenes in these books where it's, like, you know, Melody's parents are, like, we're so proud of you or, like the other siblings and they're all like in each other's lives in a really supportive way. Whereas Felicity was like, yeah, I'm going to sneak out with my britches. Like I'm going to liberate a horse. I'm going to join this like secret plot. There was never a time when she's like, Hey mom, can I like, can we have a quick rap sesh about like how I should deal with this tea party and my loyalist friend and her like brat sister? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? What's a like polite way to refuse? 
I think that's a really sweet part of these books. If you think about kids reading them with parents is like they actually model how to go to a parent and say, like, I'm really upset about this thing and not be shut down or told, like, well, that's an adult problem. But, you know, like given empowerment when she decides to make her junior block club, for example, the author of this book, she was interviewed and she said, hopefulness is so key to this story. Yes. We always try to show an optimistic perspective while tackling tough issues at the same time. And they talked about how like being hopeful was something very important to them and getting Melody right. And I think that really shines through because part of what has made it funny to go back and reread certain characters is like they are optimistic in a deeply delusional way because they don't understand how things work. And because she is a young black person in the United States in the 1960s, that margin for error doesn't really exist for her, right? Like it absolutely does not exist for Dwayne. It does not exist for her two older sisters. And I think that's a very profound difference really like not just because there are historical connections. Like I kept thinking like, what do I think are some of the best written characters of these books? And I usually go back to Addie and Rebecca. And I think part of what makes them among the better written characters and stories are the marginal characters Mm -hmm. on the side, right? Like the quality of the writing about those people who say small things that the other or the main characters process. And I think that's like one of the great strengths of this book too. I think so. And I think to add to that, I think something that makes this world so rich is the community, is the sense of community you get. Like you're saying the minor characters, but also like really grounding us in the spaces where she would be networking and making the connections that allow her to, you know, do the things that she wants to do. Like you're saying, they're very ambitious. They're somewhat precocious. But, you know, we open in the church, like pretty early on in the church where we go, she, we get a sense that she is now, what, 10? So she's born on New Year's Day. So she's born January 1, 1954. And we open with going into January 1, 1964. And we have a kind of jarring commentary on the assassination of President Kennedy, which would have happened just over a month prior. And then we learn that they're going to a New Year's Day service to learn about basically how their pastor is going to give them guidance for the year to come. Yes. And it's called Watch Night, which has a tradition of dating back to when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued and enslaved people like watching for word of that um, spreading. And I wasn't familiar with that tradition. So that, you know, was cool to learn about. I love that she calls it Melody's Eve or like her family calls it Melody's Eve. Iconic. It must be hard to be born on a holiday. Like I feel for people like that. As a Leo, it's like, you know, it's hard to share your day with other things. But I love that there's this thing in her life that kind of denotes like a milestone of moving up, like in terms of your age and your maturity, like you're allowed to stay up. I don't remember the first time I was allowed to stay up to midnight on New Year's, but like that is sort of like an interesting benchmark. It was also kind of reminiscent of Josefina, right? Mm. Who doesn't like really have a traditional birthday arc. But there is a choice in that book to make her celebration St. Joseph's Day, right? right? Like to kind of put her in that alignment. And I think it shows that like the connection to the community is real. It's deep. Like Samantha has a summer house and like knows people and has an aunt and an uncle and a grandparent, but she's not really part of a community, right? But there are right. other characters who are like deeply connected to something. I love that she takes this on as her birthday And it's also that good reminder of, you know, like the adults around her are saying things and she's trying to figure out how does this relate to me? And basically from that service onward, there's a whole other thread in this book, which is that Melody is constantly learning about Black history and she Mm -hmm. learns about Black history in school, but it's also very important for her family to show her literal seeds and to say, this is part of our history, or the story of Rosa Parks is part of our history. And what was so just like really remarkable to me was how recent that would have been, right? Like Mm. thinking about the power of, we don't ever go to school with Melody, which I think is really striking, right? Or that's like not a big part of, unless I'm mistaken, we don't really spend time with her in school in a deeply meaningful way in these books. Mary Ellen is always in school, right? Like Mary Ellen is always in school and yet we're hearing nothing about segregation. We have these kind of scenes with Melody where she's learning, 
She does the big school project here, but we don't have to be like in a classroom in a book too for her to learn a lesson. Like she starts a project at school about black history, but takes it home. Yeah, like the personal is political for her in a very real way. And I think that's a major difference. And it's really a sign of Marilyn's privilege that she never has to think about segregation. And she doesn't. I mean, there's no private internal family or school conversation really about segregation. And both of their worlds are segregated. But Mm -hmm. we're very aware that Melody's is because there's such a deeply embedded conversation about what it is to deal with racism. And like from the grandfather, like the oldest person in their family talking about how they had to leave the family farm in Alabama to her own experience in a department store. Like we're with her in all these spaces where she can't forget that this is a really huge factor in her life. Whereas Mary Ellen is kind of like allowed to just exist without thinking about this major issue that's shaping their world. I did think it's funny with that in mind that like the JFK assassination is basically like thrown out in one line and we move on from it because it's kind of a tell of like, well, that's not really relevant to my life right now, but like this other stuff is. It's very striking because her world is about to change even further, right? With the presidency of Lyndon Baines Johnson, right? And the ushering in of like the really deep, great society legislation I think part of why maybe that was included was to give you like a further historical marker, right? Like we've moved from the ending of the last book, November Mm -hmm. 22nd has happened. We're now going into 1964. Um, But these books really brilliantly like cover a pretty tight window of time and show you from book one, from the first time that Melody learns that you can use your money to be political, to book mm-hmm. two, she's like completely ready to participate in a full-on community boycott. In right. book one, she is withdrawing money from a bank and encouraging others to do so because they've mistreated her sister. By book two, she's part of a community-organized boycott of Fieldstons, which has mistreated a number of people. I, I like that there's a scene in this book where a white customer walks up to the door and there is a moment between Melody's father and this customer where he's given information and he mm. changes his mind. Like he turns around. Yeah. And I, I like that that's paired in this book with stories about when boycotts are are difficult and that people mm. were harmed in boycotts, but we're not forced to walk through it just for the sake of it. Instead, like yes. a more productive set of behaviors as models. And I kept thinking like, this is the balance that you talk about, right? Like not ignoring reality, but not forcing people through a traumatic incident that wouldn't have a payoff. I think that's true. And you're also seeing her kind of pick up some momentum with how she has personally learned or made meaning of like these repeated exposures herself. Like in book one, as you're saying, it's kind of like she's raising her own, like her consciousness is being raised about what racism is and where it shows up in her world. And she learns to vote both with her spending and with her feet, like her whole family in the church goes on that protest march. Book two is really interesting because I think we see her pivot to applying pressure. Like she's willing to kind of up the ante. Like if you're not reading with us, the book opens with her going to church and the pastor challenges everyone to take on basically a, a project that would improve their world. And she decides after noting there was a playground in their neighborhood that is derelict and you know the swings are broken, the garden is overgrown, that she in handball courts, which I still need to Google, like, what is handball? <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say that. I don't know. Please, somebody never tell me. But I maybe I just maybe that's one of those things I just let go of knowing about. But basically, she's like, OK, I'm going to take this on as my project. And then the book is like learning how to create the community she needs to get the thing done that she wants. So it's like taking your individual agency and like forming a network or like reaching out to your community to make it happen. But also in the process of that, applying real pressure to, in this case, the parks department. I love, uh, there's a moment of realization for her that ties in neatly with Val and her cousin and like her extended family looking for housing. They have this kind of realization, like Val's family has like saved up some money and they're very, very ready to buy their own house now. And she says, we get our own house. My daddy says we can have a swing set in the backyard. You and your sisters can all come over to play. And then Melody realizes that 
you know, there are people who can have their own, right? This is also, mm. also the era where uh, public pools are starting to go away because of forcible integration. People just stop funding them or destroy them with bleach. And so more and more people are going to get private pools, right? And Melody is realizing, um, this is page 92, most people had small backyards. A few had swing sets, but many had vegetable gardens instead, like her family. And she says, I think having a fun, safe playground is really important. If we work together, maybe we could fix it up ourselves. She's realizing that Val is kind of like, hey, I can personally solve this problem for us. And Melody is pointing to the structural thing. This is kind of where like the Samantha books don't quite go there. It's like, okay, like Samantha can rescue Nellie, but she can't shut down the factory. Melody to scale has a problem she can solve, which is getting funding for the swing sets and getting this actual playground fixed up. There's another conversation where she straight up asks an adult why their playground is subpar. And the adult tells her that it's not as well funded because it's in a black neighborhood. Yeah. And that was a really (laughs) stark moment, but I was like, I'm really happy this moment is in the book because it's so real. And, you know, it, it comes from this like longer historical trajectory of like, if you look through historic newspapers or archives or whatnot, like you'll find all these cases where a lot of playgrounds were segregated in the forties, like in Washington, DC and a lot of places. And there's a case in Washington, DC where, um, they segregate a public pool in a park and they put a fence around it to keep black kids out basically. And about a hundred black kids, the first day they put a padlock on it, I thought of this book jump the fence or go under it. Like they refuse to accept the limitation and the police are just standing around like, we don't know what to do. Like we didn't anticipate this, but it's really interesting for the book to just be really honest about like what's going on here and why in a way that it feels like Mary Ellen would never have had to like think about this ever. There's also something happening. Like there's, you know, between the two books, the author both times, like she knows that we always need to keep something in the back of our minds because she covers a lot of territory. Book one, it's the question of whether Melody can perform and can sing the song that she's chosen for a solo. In this book, we have this challenge which starts literally January 1. And by the time school goes back, she wants the playground to look better. And I liked that we had something kind of like teased in the background, right? Like we know that we're working towards something and where the be forever format, like typically not my favorite. I actually think it kind of works for Melody. Like I still wish that we had more books, but I think that this author is very good at like keeping us on track as a kind of chapter book that we're building towards something. But then every individual chapter like takes us somewhere different. I like, I did not think we were going South in this book. And that was kind of teased with us learning that yams initially came from Africa and then towards the end of the book, they're like, yeah, of course, we're going to a farm. <laughs> yes. Well, that comes out, that information comes out in a scene that's like really, it, it caught me off guard. It was so emotional where grandpa's like talking about the family farm, which we learned in book one. He lost because of racist market practices and whatever. And he couldn't sell his crop for as much as his white counterparts, etc. And he's talking about it and like kind of like the legacy of what you leave your children he's like that's okay because like the farm is something you all get to inherit like in here Mm. and he's kind of like it's a state of mind or like it's a thing we all carry with us and it was like very emotional i'm i'm not selling it well but that's when he's also like melly's like by the way are we going there and he's like yeah sure like we can go see aunt becky like this time and it's like whoa because another emerging identity for melody is like project manager so yes She's constantly like reworking her project timeline and she's like, oh God, all right, well, <laughs> if we're opening this late August and this trip is happening in June, like, I guess that leaves me enough time to get this all done. And then grandpa later emerges as a person who's like, what if you delegate and you made like committees and you put people in charge of stuff and make like gave them ownership over different parts of it? And she's like, I guess. I think the real one to watch and this, you know, comes out in a strange way in this book you know, like we're hearing a lot of like headlines about Yvonne, right? Like she has an Afro, she goes to college, she is part of Freedom Summer, she is going to improve literacy rates and sign people up to vote. Like we're there. Dwayne like gets a Motown record deal. He knows famous people. He knows people on the radio. He's like personally connected with Barry Gordy. We're all there. I think like the person to keep your other eye, like if I was with the FBI at this time, 
Okay. It's little sister Lilla. Because nobody is wow. paying attention to her. Let's just be honest. Like, truly, like, we could we not know be paying that Lila less attention. won her scholarship. That's basically all we get. And that there's a lot of, like, covert flirting with a member of Dwayne's group. There's flirting there, but I think that's a decoy. I think, like, she's the wow. one that the FBI is actually going to end up tailing because I think she's going to get pulled into a lot of different possible surveillance projects. She's the science whiz. No one is paying attention to her. She's the exact person that the FBI is going to zoom in on. Like, Vonnie is wow. so obvious. Yeah, she's not going to, she's like, you know, she's the one they want to watch, but she's not going to be the one they watch is what you're saying? Yeah, because honestly, it's like we are only two books in and we've already forgotten basically that this middle sister exists. What got me on this path was contrasting the obsession with the space race and science that is so pervasive in Mary Ellen's books and the way Mm. that that has effectively disappeared for the purpose of this story. And it got me thinking like there's this very old kind of, you know, two, two camps of thinking about this era as either looking at the civil rights movement or the Cold War. And Mm. American Girl is like, well, we gave you Mary Ellen's rocket shenanigans with the Cold War. Now you're getting civil rights. And where Lilla, I think, is like so rich with opportunity is like the failings of the civil rights movement were huge ammunition for other other countries in the Cold War era. And so like her being into science is like very hidden figures, but it also just got me thinking like they've sort of divided these as two separate issues when in fact like prominent black intellectuals were asked to tour to basically lie about racism in the United States or like put on a good show about the United States. And they had their own reasons for participating. But American Girls basically said like, all right, we're doing these two separate. (laughs) Like you get one or the other. And then there's middle sister. And she's just kind of out there on her own. We don't know what she's up to. Like, is she going to be accused of working with the Russians because of her interest in science? I don't know. Like, part of what brought this out, too, was I pulled the headlines in Detroit for the day that Melody was born, right? January Mm. 1, 1954. A toner about communism, right? Like, this absolute obsession with communism, with surveillance, with inspecting people. And it is sort of a miracle in that climate that this much organizing could happen. We know that they're being surveilled, right? Like Martin Luther King Jr. is being watched. Is middle sister Lila also being watched? I don't know. Or is she just like planning? Like she's the only one who's thinking about maybe we're all under surveillance and we should be careful with that. Like it's interesting in in advance of today, I was reading around about playscapes as a like a civil rights space and like what would the civil rights movement look like if you followed those spaces? And somebody made the comparison to the black man birder in Central Park a few years ago, who the white woman called the police on him when he was just like literally trying to bird in the in Central Park, I think. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like this assumption that like if a black person finds themselves in like certain spaces, they immediately become under surveillance. And, you know, you see that in the department store, like you see that in a park. So it's not like out of the realm of possibility that like Lila is someone who's like probably more thoughtful about most things because she's, you know, studying all the time and whatever is like thinking about that. I think it's also like you're never going to get equal attention on all the siblings, but this is such a shocking comparison to like, we did get a really cool older sister in Mary Ellen, but not every American girl has had such like possibility with each family member like we learn that the father loves poetry and again i think like there's such a complexity to the characters that lewis patrick does but also like beautiful connections back if you recall the important role of poetry that is so big in Cecile's life, right? Mm -hmm. Cecile really wants to perform a poem and she also is like very involved with poetry with her family like, as if there wasn't enough going on with the playground. In the course of this book, we have the family meeting Langston Hughes, who passes away three years after this, you know, would have taken place. But, like, that was a shock. That was, like, a from nowhere drop-in where I was, like, this... It was, like, heartwarming where I'm, like, it's amazing and sort of, like, bold to have actual historical people <laughs> yeah. show up in an American Girl book. 
Like, imagine if they just, like, wrote in, like, a really cranky John Adams into Felicity and he's, like, passing through town. He's like, leave me alone. Like, when she's like, hey, sir, can you, like, talk to me about, like, this and that? And she's, he's like, absolutely not. Get out of here. But, like, Langston Hughes, like, shows up a real person. And it's just sort of, like, I think it's a bold move as a writer to be like, I'm taking on having this real person join my fictional scenario. So I was into that, but like, it was such a heartwarming scene, like where she begs to go to the department store where he's signing copies of his book and shares with him that she loves his poetry and that her father does too. Like, what did you make of that scene? So I would have read this scene differently, like literally two weeks ago, but I was, someone reached out to me, right, about the subject of my dissertation, who was a Black home economist. And part of why they reached out to me was... I truly did not remember this anecdote, but this woman, Flemmy Cottrell, who was one of the founders of Head Start, went to this like very big meeting. And as part of her preamble to like making a clinical justification for the Head Start program, recited a Langston Hughes poem from memory. And I Mm. honestly like I did not remember this anecdote. I finished that project seven years ago. And part of why this this research team reached out to me as they said, like, why did she do that? Like, what, why, like, why yeah. in that moment did she choose to do that? And I think recalling that and like going back through my notes and like what was going on, this was been uh, contemporaneous with this book. Okay. It got me thinking about, you know, like this father is actually a realistic character, right? And thinking about the way that you know, communities of people who had been enslaved, who fought and freed themselves, would memorize the entire Bible, right? Or would memorize like entire huge right. passages of text and that oral performance being so important. And it kind of gave me like a different frame that like cherishing someone who came out of the Harlem Renaissance and the fact that her father is able to just like recite and like drop into Langston Hughes actually is real, right? Because this random person I studied like showed up to a meeting and just recited Langston Hughes without saying like now I'm going to read this poem to kind of give you like a perspective like she just did that um so that kind of like really got me thinking about Mm. like how good these books are right like how really very like detailed in a proper way they are but like the meaning of those words being so special right to someone like the real historical figure I studied or Mr. Ellison and that breaking through with a Langston Hughes poem, like pretty cool. Yeah. And it makes me wonder like when it fell out of favor in schools to have kids memorize things, because I feel like that was such a strong tradition of like memorizing certain poems. If you're raised in religious or certain religious traditions, it's still a thing to memorize prayers or biblical passages. But like, I do think that that memory the act of memorizing is a way of like honoring something while also like it is a performance of education as well. I went to Catholic school, which I know you did as well. We memorized a lot of stuff. I mean, I had to memorize, you know, songs to remember all the books of the Bible, but we had to know a number of prayers in multiple languages. And in eighth grade, we had a class where we memorized and recited poems which I think is just like a very old fashioned approach yes. to education. But I remember like we, we had to be able to recite certain poems and my teacher could recite a number from memory, like just yes. casually. Yeah, for sure. I wonder how much that's, that's part of it, but it's such a moving scene. And like, I don't know, it just reminds me of like, have you ever met anyone that was famous that like wrote a book that you really loved or something like that? I mean, honestly, yeah, I went to Yale. This was years ago and I met uh, Jodi Pico and she was great. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I went and she was honestly very lovely. She was very kind. She took good questions. I'm trying to think, you know, there are academics who I've met who I really admire, but in terms of popular authors, I would say she's Not probably really. the one and she signed one of my books. But yeah, I mean, I would say for me, that was probably like, because I love her writing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's such a personal thing to get to read some, to meet someone who like created something you love like that. And it's such a like sweet family moment that she could then share that with her dad, like when she goes home. So it's sort of reciprocal, like he shared the poems with her and she gets to share the experience of meeting the poet with him. Like, that's just really sweet. 
would you want to meet a musician or a poet more? I don't know. I mean, this is like, this is embarrassing, but like two weeks ago, maybe I went to a Connecticut Sun game and look, Jen Rosati was like my, one of my childhood <laughs> heroes. Yes. Do you know, like Jen Rosati, the point guard of the 1995 UConn women's basketball team. This I is know like a Jen local Rosati. Zone. Okay. I'm glad. I'm not, I didn't want to make any assumptions, but people in this arena didn't know Jen Rosati because she's the president of basketball operations for the Sun. So every time I've gone to a Sun game, I'm like, is today the day I get to see Jen Rosati? And it hasn't happened. I'm watching the game, minding my own business. I look to the right, just kind of casually looking around the arena. Jen Rosati's like next at the end of my row. And I'm like in the middle of like nowhere in this arena. And I'm like, oh my God. And she's wearing her name tag. It's like Jen Rosati, but I didn't need the name tag. But I was like, oh my God. And I like, I froze and I like turned on and I was like, oh my God, that's Jen Rosati. Oh my God, that's Jen Rosati. I've never had this experience before. Then she came into my, the row in front of me, sat down right in front of me. And like literally as she's stepping over people to get to her seat, these like random strangers like clearly have no idea who she is. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't want to block your view. Like she's so nice to them. And I'm like, why are you apologizing to them? They just met Jen Rosati. Then she sits down and it was like a kind of reunion of UConn players. I didn't oh. recognize these other ones, but I like through an investigative process I won't go into, figured out who they all were. And she sat down right in front of me. I took a psycho picture of her, of the back of her head. And Anna was like, what are you doing? And she was like, are you going to say hi? Then she got up because she was working and she was like, okay, have fun. And she left. And I was like, I, I couldn't say a word to her. I if I had, I would have just been like, thank you. You were my hero. You made me think short girls could do anything. Thank you for that. You were fierce. You continue to be. I just froze. I was like, I don't even know what to say. I feel like I'm weird. I've already made it weird in my head. Like I should just never, I shouldn't make eye contact with her. She's living her life. I'm just gonna let her do that. Was that the right call? I don't know. I felt like a total psychopath by the end of this. I think part of what this book and your story like get right is like fame is so relative. And when they're looking at how long the line is to meet Langston Hughes, um, Dwayne is basically like, do you all know that like he just writes poems? And um, he's basically trying that. to cut into the line. And he says, wow, what a turnout. People are treating this man like a rock and roll star or something. And the mom is not having it. And she says he is a star. Wow. Yes. I love that moment from the mom. But it's also like a genius moment on the author's part because she then kind of reminds him like there is no Motown without popular black poets yes. and like the proliferation of a certain kind of black art. Um and she then they then talk about like the dream deferred. Um, and Dwayne says he didn't read it. Speaking of their father, he knew it by heart. So I memorized it too. And you realize that even Dwayne, who's kind of mm. being sort of like, you know, not, not very reverent and being kind of like, there's so much to Dwayne in this book. Like this scene is also paired with the fact that he hides when they are boycotting the store downtown yes. and he makes eye contact with Melody and once again asks her to kind of keep a secret. He like shushes with his I finger. I didn't like that again. Yeah. And it's sort of like a moment where you're seeing down the pathway of like, you think that he's taking like the cool and radical path, but actually he is being channeled into a certain kind of conservatism with Motown. Mm. And then Yvonne is the one who's like being arrested and being radical. But the fact that he's afraid to be seen at this incident, right? And people are singing and people are gathering in community. I think you're supposed to deduce from that, that like he's not allowed to be seen there. Oh, that's interesting. I that's, think, right? That, that's interesting. I did wonder about that scene because it's not, it's never spoken of again. Like Melody no. never says to Dwayne when she sees him later, like, hey, what was that about? Like, it's just never touched again. So you're kind of wondering, like, is this, like, were you told not to be there? Like, are you, like, censoring yourself because you're afraid about, like, you know, jeopardizing your Motown gig? It would be interesting to hear more about Motown's history to know, like, was that something that they were encouraged to do to kind of like minimize their political exposure? Because you have like a lot of musicians who are activists in this period. And, you know, like what, where is Motown in that? Right. In book one, we know that Barry Gordy is recording the MLK speech, which will be the precursor to the famous 
March on Washington speech. So we have that. We also know that the woman who goes by the queen, who's a very prominent local radio star, right? Like Mm -hmm. local disc jockey, that she supports Melody and her efforts. I think part of what you're seeing in Dwayne is whether it's been said to him or he has just picked up on something. He's so afraid of how precarious his situation is that he's not going to take risks. So he, whether he's been told to not be seen or he just thinks he shouldn't be, clearly that kind of protest is like, okay, within the Ellison family. So that's not why he's hiding. Right. Yeah. And that's, it's an interesting juxtaposition too, because on the one hand, the dad is treating him like he's the most radical in terms of like professional life choice. Like he's betraying like the dad's ambition for him to go to college. So Mm -hmm. it's like, wow, he's so out there. But then it's like, here's a moment where he at least appears conservative. Like you never know why, but it is an interesting juxtaposition. It's also interesting that they choose to put into the plot the dad like affirming him at a certain point for his music. Yes, that the dad wants him to feel supported. And as you mentioned, the parents affirm Yvonne's decision to, you know, stay. Like after she is released from her arrest, she decides that she's going to stay and continue with the work. And the parents are extremely affirming of both of those. Yeah, which is an interesting. I really like the depictions of family relationships in this movie or in this movie, in this book. Because, you know, you have the scenes where the parents really do trust their kids. Like, you know, they are curious about some of their choices and they ask them to sort of explain. But then there's not a lot of like, and you're not doing that because I said so. There's sort of like, okay, like we are afraid and we support you. Like you're actually doing what we raised you to do. Like in Yvonne's case. There's also a moment where, you know, unlike all this kind of like back and forth about whether Dwayne should be doing this, uh, when we learn that she is going to sing backup vocals, she asks her father, like, if she should have a stage name, basically. And he says, how about Melody Ellison? And I thought that was so interesting, right? Because there's so much like back and forth about whether like Dwayne doing this is okay. Obviously, Melody Ellison rules as a stage name, but also he's like, well, yeah, of course, like you're not going to hide. Later, uh, kind of like in in the middle of the book, we meet Dwayne at the studio and he's standing in the doorway and we learn he looks very grown up and serious. And then a scene that made me burst out laughing while reading this follows (laughs) at the classic piano. Are you going to read it? I, I want to. Um. So first of all, like, this will be funny if you have a quick recollect of the film It Takes Two with the Olsen twins. Another Um, classic. He is sitting down and the mother asks if he'll play something. Um, And he says, seems like a classic piano should be singing classical tunes. And he starts to play um, something that they'd only heard before on the radio. And uh, Lila says, hey, that's Chopin. When did you... Dwayne laughs. When did you? He shot back. Like, I kind of love that everyone's just mean to her. Um, who's Chopin? Melody asks, looking from Dwayne to Lila. Frederic Chopin. He was a composer in the 1800s, Lila explained. Uh, and then he starts to sing a song that's about Melody and she's going to do the backup vocals. Famously, an Olsen twin calls it Chopin, which is how I learned Iconic. from that film that it is not Chopin. That was a real teachable moment for all of us. Like, I feel like a lot of people had their consciousness raised about Chopin from that moment. And we're like, interesting. (laughs) Hmm. That's not how it's pronounced. Okay. No. And I think you're supposed to take that, like, he is putting the kind of dedication into his musical career that we are seeing of Yvonne going to college, right? And everyone else is, like, working very hard, um, but also that he wants his family to be proud of him. Yes. Like you, I actually really love the perspective that we get of like, it is a true thing from life that when you see your siblings in a different context, you're like, wow, like they're like this whole other person in this other context. Like when they go to work, like they're this completely other professional version of themselves that is different than the person I know. And it's like, wow, that's cool. Like, it's cool to see 
you know, how your family members like live outside of your relationship. Also that they all want to see Melody succeed. Something as simple as her making the timeline of Black history and they decide that they're going to add kind of like an interesting frame to it. You know, really like just driving home the fact that a very good team worked on this book and a team that was acutely aware that like the timing of this is so important that there are teachers, right? Like teaching at her school in 1964 who can Mm. say like, we have the story of George Washington Carver and we have the story of all of these people and we have the frame of activism to teach it to you in a very particular way. Like really such kind of like a, Mm. a staggering thing to imagine that she has access to this and more than like other characters Like, Felicity, like, who knows where that all went? But it's, like, you'd love to see where Melody goes with all of this, like, very early education. Yeah, I mean, especially knowing they talk about Stevie Wonder at one point, and they reference one of his early songs. And he was signed, he started performing as a child with Motown. Mm -hmm. So that's why, that's also an interesting moment when she comes in to sing backup on Dwayne's song. No one is, like... Or we we don't see this conversation of being, like, Dwayne, like, your kid's sister? She's (laughs) 10? Like, you want a 10-year-old as your backup singer? Like, there's no question about this at all. Like, everyone's like, yep, makes sense. Like, she's great. The arrangement's good. Everyone's really vibing on his track, moving on up. But it sort of makes you wonder, like, is the forecast of her, is there, like, an imaginary future where she's, like, the female Stevie Wonder who gets signed to Motown as, like, a child and then matures into, like, a singer-songwriter? Or is she a project manager, as you say? Or is she actually just Tina Knowles? I don't know. Woo! Or does she is she the landscape architect behind Michelle Obama's White House garden? Yeah, like, you know, one thing I think that fell a little bit flat about reading Mary Ellen is she was like, I've got one thing, like I love science and nobody yeah. pays enough attention to me. And she's like, whether it's writing a small musical about the polio vaccine, whether it's launching a rocket, whether it's painting the front door red, like I will do anything for attention. Melody is not about that, even though, like, she loves a good outfit. She loves a solo. She Mm -hmm. loves her friends coming out to her playground rally. When I was reading articles about, like, how did people in Detroit, like, receive this character, there was a photo of a young girl, like, getting a Melody at a Detroit Public Library event. And next to it was a story about the Flint water crisis and sort of, like, What are Mm. we going to learn from this? Because this was back in 2016. And you want to like reach into that paper from seven years ago and be like, not much, sadly. Like we're not going to learn much. Like thinking of Little Miss Flint, right? As kind of like a contrast to the Melody story. Like where is the Melody of Michigan now? Like she's being silenced. I don't know, but... (laughs) Well, and I think it's a good, you're making a really good point, though, which is like a lot of civil rights books, particularly those aimed at children, I think really focus on progress as the Mm. theme. And they want to see like a narrative of like history as a narrative of progress, like here's how things have gotten better. But to your point, you know, sadly, like, how do you tell that story that while also acknowledging that, you know, in a lot of different areas and a lot of different places, like it's not that different. Yeah. And what did you make of the inside Melody's world? Like, obviously, these are not meant to be the same as what we get into a peek into the past. But I find that especially with her book, they're so detached, right? Like, I don't know, they're just so much bigger, so much more abstract. We get a history of Freedom Summer. We learn a little bit about like real people who participated in things like CORE. But it's really like very apart, even from Detroit. Um, it's focused on the Mississippi Summer Project. You're really not getting a sense of like, okay, so, you know, in the really good peek into the past sections, it was like, here's what it was like to be a 10 year old in 1964. We, we are totally not given that with this no. format at all. Or even like some of the other books, like Kit's books and some others would sort of forecast a few years into the future. Like, you right. know, in Kit's lifetime, like she would have lived through X, Y, Z thing. Like, what would she be doing during World War II? All of that. Like, we don't get that here either. Because for Detroit, it's an interesting story, like for how much Motown has been like an important character almost in these books. Like Motown leaves Detroit by the end of the decade. They go to L.A. 
And, you know, so like there's, and that's just one industry that pivots away from Detroit. Like that has effects on the whole community. Like there's so many different things that are specific to Detroit that are not here. So you can't really even speculate about what her life would have been like, but they're also really not that interested in the section at all about things that were relating to her. Like Yvonne went to Freedom Summer. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that's not interesting, but that's not about Melody. Yeah, their connection here is Melody was proud of her sister for joining Freedom Summer, but she was worried about her too. You're like, okay, yep, like totally valid. Um, But the ending of this says the civil rights movement is not over. Americans have made great progress, uh, but people of all races and ages continue to take action to make justice, equality, and dignity grow. Like, obviously, you have to end this on some kind of positive sort of. But yeah, like there's so many other things like thinking about the way that, you know, Felicity gets guitar, right? And so because Felicity gets a guitar for her birthday, it's like you learn about music in the 18th century. Like you could have done like five of those. And if we're already printing 200 plus pages, it's like, give us more. (laughs) Like there's such good stuff in here. There's such good stuff in here. I kind of wish they had forecasted and been like, here may be things that she could have, if she wanted to continue to help her community, here's different things that, you know, like she might have been interested in or involved in, including like integrating Detroit schools. Like we actually never spent a lot of time in school, which is really interesting in light of everything that's going on in this moment. But it would be interesting to think about that. Like it'd be interesting to think about, you know, all kinds of different things, like what kind of professional paths are available to her, like you know, speculating on maybe where she goes to college. Like, I don't know, just like anything. It's kind of assumed that school is a safe place for her. Like that school is a place where she is affirmed and she learns black history and that's celebrated. But I think in a similar way to you having to assume like with Mary Ellen school that it's segregated. I think that is the assumption here. Right. That the reason it's so affirming is she lives in a predominantly black world where there are black professionals, teachers running Motown, where her father still has a really good job in a factory and they can write, like make, make a living that way. I think that's the assumption. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I, I, so I thought it was an odd ending to just focus on freedom summer and Mississippi. I mean, it's important, but it's, it's just, I don't know if it was to sort of parallel, like the major civil rights event that's in book one is the bombing of the church in Birmingham. And then Mm. I think there's an afterward that sort of like focuses on that. And so here they're like, okay, well, the big national event is freedom summer. So we're going to just focus on that. Like, I don't know. It'd be interesting to know. We end with her singing again, and she's pulled onto stage to sing with Dwayne. And she's like, you know, mock, like stage whisper shock. She's like me, you know, as if she hasn't been involved in all this. I think maybe part of what they were trying to do is in book one, lift every voice and sing is an important Mm. part of her history. And I think what they're trying to show here is like on as a bookend, right? Like Dwayne has written something about a person who inspires him, which is his 10 year old sister. And she's part of singing it and she'll never stop singing. I think that's kind of where they were trying to go. Like, I don't think it was going to end with her being like, and now we're going to Woolworths to boycott them. Like they wanted to end with, you know, something very affirming and positive. Yeah. I mean, that's my guess. You can't fault him there. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but overall, I would say these books are great. I really enjoyed these books so far. These books are great. We are definitely going to do more content about Melody. Our first order of business is watching her movie, which I know is not, you know, like the full feature that we've gotten with some characters, but it is important to cover that. And then we are going to do additional supplemental content around her life and times because it's super interesting. Yes. I'm excited for that. I'm excited to kind of like go deeper into her world a bit. I feel like we're all over the place in the short term, but like we're also going to play Tamagotchis for approximately a month. And scared. If you want to hear about that, that will be that will be on our Patreon. We have so much over there. If you want to go back through our back catalog, we've done so many American Girl adjacent and Dear America things that we've given the full treatment. So if you're kind of like, okay, like. There's all if you're on the fence, yeah. like get in there. We also have the Discord, which is popping off like all the time. Mm-hmm. I laugh all the time when people talk about 
interesting things. I love dropping in like we have a crafting channel and I love seeing things people make and it does inspire me. You know, there's just, there's a lot going on and I've never engaged Tamagotchi. Mine arrived in the mail. I'm scared to start it, but you know, we'll be, we'll be chronicling us as parents of virtual pets caretakers, you might say, for our August Patreon, which is a listener's suggestion. So if you join the Patreon, we do take your suggestions and then we dream up some other stuff on our own. So, you know, lots doing. Honestly, I feel like Dwayne, Dwayne would love the Discord. Like we have places where people talk about music, like for the Dwayne other would sisters. love the Discord. There's books, there's activism, like dad could get in there and talk about Langston Hughes, like there's something for everybody. So. And Lila would love something that you just made the other day, a listener request, the bookshop. Yes, bookshop.org. We have a storefront, so that's where you can purchase our book. It's also where you can purchase. We'll solely be adding everything we've talked about on the show. So our back catalog of Patreon picks, other books that we recommend, things we read in our Patreon book club. So be sure to check all of that out. It's the same name as the show, Dolls of Our Lives, and we have a book front so you can shop there and support the show as well. And support local bookstores, which we're all about. Our book comes out November 7th. If you pre-order it now, we would so appreciate it. You'll get it on the day it comes out, I think. Um, You know, more to come on that, but we're just excited to share it with you. And that's a lot of times people ask us where they can find the list of books we talk about. So this is a really great place to, to find that. So Allison, if people want to find that, anything else associated with the show, like where can they get in touch with us? Yeah, I'm Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow the show at Dolls Lives Pod or Dolls Lives Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Mary, where should people find you? The number one place to find me is at Mimi Mahoney on Instagram. I have a lot of DMs I'm behind on, but I am going to catch up. So I do write everyone back. Sometimes it just takes me a minute. But I am on Twitter at Mary Mahoney one two three. I'm gonna be honest with you, like I'm not on there a lot. Sometimes <laughs> I just like read tweets, but I I don't like tweet myself. I'm on Threads at Mimi Mahoney, but like stay tuned for that. Is, did that already flop? Like, what are we saying about that? I have nothing to say about Threads. I'm okay. I I don't have it personally, so. That's fine. It's cool. I'm just trying to feel it all out. But yeah, we love to hear from you. We love your suggestions. We so appreciate you being our community in the same way Melody has like such a cool community. So do we, and we're so grateful. And we will see you on our next episode.